2: Our next guest uh, is making the case for enlightenment and also for reason, science, humanism, and progress. You'd think that'd be an easy case to make, but we need Steven Pinker, Harvard psychologist and professor, uh, to tell us more and why it's been such a struggle for many people to uh, grasp that uh, enlightenment now is a good thing. Uh, Professor Pinker, thanks for being with us. Tell us, why did you decide to write this book now?
3: Two reasons. One of them is I kept coming across data showing that uh, the state of humanity has been improving in ways that that surprised me. I knew from the work that I did for a previous book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that measures of violence had shown uh, declines, that uh, the rate of death in war, violent crime, rape, uh, spousal abuse, child abuse... Uh, capital punishment, all, all had declined over, over the uh, centuries and decades. But then I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see that global poverty has fallen from about 90 percent of uh, of humanity to 10 percent, that literacy has risen to 90 percent for people under 25, that diseases are being uh, decimated, that uh, leisure time has increased, and uh, few people are aware of these developments. We're aware of everything that goes wrong, and we're not aware of the gradual things that uh, that get better and better. So I wanted to just put all of these data between a pair of covers, just to uh, counter the uh, uh, gloomy view of the world that you get from the headlines, and also of course try to explain it, because I don't believe there's any mystical force that just makes things better and better by magic. And I, I attribute it to uh, a few important ideas that came to the fore during the second half of the 18th century, such as that we should use reason to uh, uh, analyze our situation as opposed to authority and dogma and uh, superstition. That we we should uh, enhance uh, science, and that we should value the lives of uh, individual men, women, and children as about the highest moral good. These ideas might sound obvious, but they're they're not that obvious, and I think collectively they're responsible for the progress that we've enjoyed.
0: Yeah, what's not responsible is us, uh, the media, because uh, you blame us for if it bleeds, it leads, and sort of adding to this gloom and doom view of the world. And I'm just wondering, I mean, uh, is that enough to drag down the discourse and sort of of the misinformation that we uh, have experienced with, uh, you know, p- potentially uh, ambiguous sources of news infiltrating different uh, economies. I mean, has that impeded the progress, or is that a blip on the screen that's been overemphasized by us?
3: Well, I, I certainly don't want to join into the in the, with, in the chorus of uh, blaming the mainstream media for for everything because the mainstream media are uh, sure a uh, uh, heck of a lot better than the alternatives. Uh, I, I do think there's a there is something of a bias. That is, it is of course essential to point out the, the problems that occur and the suffering and the injustices and the failures. But uh, what's more important is to be accurate and to also show where uh, where things have gotten better. And without, so it's not a call to balance bad news with with feel good stories. But uh, a lot of good things have happened. They don't happen uh, overnight, but still they're important to have a balanced view of the world and to uh, be aware of the, the, the solutions. That that uh, actually have uh, made people better off, not not just the catastrophes and disasters.
2: Professor Pinker, uh, I want to just draw your attention to something specific because we don't necessarily get a chance to focus on it uh, too much, which is uh, nuclear power and fourth generation nuclear reactors. And I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on what some of the things you described in your book about the potential for nuclear power
3: yeah that's uh, I, I have uh, I'm very open about the uh, uh, severe problems facing the world that we have not yet solved and climate change is one of them uh, but I join in a, I think a growing number of uh, science oriented environmentalists in saying that nuclear power is going to have to be part of the solution to mitigating um, uh, harmful climate change just because it's the most scalable and abundant Source of um, of zero carbon uh, energy, uh, and there is a among the the pro nuclear power environmentalists there is a, a bit of a debate as to whether we should uh, continue to perfect the second generation light water reactors that have, uh, despite the, the Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, have had a, a quite a remarkable safety record over the last uh, sixty years, especially compared with alternatives like coal, um, or whether we should uh, accelerate. Uh, toward uh, so-called fourth-generation designs, which are a, a variety of different technologies, none of them in operation now, but they include possible designs where uh, small m- uh, reactors would be mass-produced uh, in, in shipyards and, and and moved by rail or ship to locations and, and towed out of the way if there's a, a storm or a warning of a or of an earthquake. Um, there are uh, traveling wave reactors. There, there's a uh, uh, thorium reactors. Yeah. Uh, uh, so these are separate from fusion, which is a whole different family of technologies. But uh, there is, I think, tremendous progress on the scale of several decades for um, even safer, even cheaper, uh, yeah. abundant sources of energy.
0: You know, Stephen, when when people talk about enlightenment, they think of the golden ages of science where there was rapid uh, understanding and respect for previous uh, analyses and theorems. And how do you square that with a growing movement to uh, reject uh, evolution and, you know, Kind of push back or or fund uh, universities less, um, you know, sort of the anti intellectual bents that can be seen on a number of different levels.
3: Yeah, a lot. We're, we're living in paradoxical times because, on the one hand, uh, science is being applied to more and more areas of, of policy in human life. We've got evidence-based policy and evidence-based medicine, and uh, uh, cleometrics and moneyball, even in sports. We've got data-driven crime reduction. My
0: husband loves sabermetrics, by the way. But carry on.
3: Yeah, and uh, the uh, but at the at the, uh, uh, at the same time we have what seem to be outbursts of irrationality such as uh, and anti-vaccine campaigns and uh, uh, demonization of genetically modified organisms and denial of uh, human-made climate change. The the um, I think the main answer is that when issues get politicized when they become identity badges for a a, a political coalition almost a tribe that's when all of the uh, mechanisms of of human psychology that we're becoming aware of that deny evidence or that actually use our rational faculties to uh, construct the the, the strongest case for what we already believed in in the first place, dismissing counter arguments, dismissing counter evidence that's when it it, uh, goes into Uh, full tilt, and we use our intelligence instead of getting at the truth, we use our intelligence kind of like high-powered lawyers to win the case at all costs. And so we don't yet really know how to depoliticize issues so that we can apply our collective rationality uh, to coming up with the best answer as opposed to just glorifying uh, our side of the political divide.
2: Have you uh, read or or sort of listened to any of the criticism of your new book? Because it's interesting that it's being criticized by both those who uh, are supposedly in favor of scientific inquiry Inquiry and reason, uh, but also those uh, that offer a more dystopian view of the future.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, it would be it would, it would contradict my own principles if I uh, only read the positive reviews and didn't read the negative reviews. Um, so uh, so so yes, and, and there is opposition, and I expected opposition um, from from a number of sectors, from a kind of uh, mainstream uh, literary, cultural, academic. Um, uh, a cadre of, of uh, critics and analysts who are um, they're deeply committed to the idea that, that Western civilization is in decline, that, that all our institutions are evil and corrupt, and that uh, it's been in decline. I mean, if you, if you actually take them seriously for, for 150 years, you wonder why it hasn't toppled yet. Uh, and and the, there's an attitude of uh, a constant dudgeon and, in, and a feeling of, of taking umbrage at uh, every institution of, of modern society, and so for someone to come, like me to come along and say, "Well, for all its flaws, you know, we are living longer, and racial prejudice is going down, and oh, the, the, the rights of women have increased, and poverty is going down globally, and there are fewer wars, and crime is down." It's almost like vindicating the the, the establishment that they're committed to, uh, uh, to to demonizing. So I expected that. Uh, uh, I expected pushback from the, uh, the religious right because I argue for a morality that is uh, thoroughly secular, depends only on human well-being, doesn't depend on scripture or messiahs or divine commandments. Uh, and I, I expected... Uh, Um, uh, Push back on specific issues. Uh, A lot of the traditional green movement is dead set against uh, nuclear power, for example. Uh, On the other side, a lot of the uh, American right is dead set against the idea that there's even uh, uh, a threat of uh, climate change because of uh, emission of uh, uh, greenhouse gases. Yeah. So I, anyway, a lot of opposition, and I, I anticipated uh, all of it.
0: Well, we appreciate you uh, joining us and uh, filling us in on all of that and, and expressing your ideas, which are an important uh, an important thing to note, given the uh, the negative headlines that do cross every day that we bring to everybody every day. Stephen Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard University, uh, joining us from Boston, Massachusetts. Here to talk about uh, what the trade policy may mean and to weigh in on what we just heard, Paresh Upatia, director of currency strategy at Mundi Pioneer, uh, he joins us here in our eleven three zero studios. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Paresh. Uh, what was your impression of of what we just heard from Peter Navarro? Well, I thought what I
4: thought was most interesting comment was the need for protectionism in. Um, certain sectors like he mentioned, steel and aluminum, and he in fact highlighted aluminum. And there is little doubt that aluminum production in the US has declined sharply. Capacity utilization of aluminum is down to thirty seven percent. But I think what we need to see is not just tariffs. I mean, to protect the industry is one thing, but we need investments. And he described six smelter. Um, plants that have been shut down. Uh, The problem is, is that we're not seeing new investment in the aluminum industry. So if tariffs are implemented, but uh, these aluminum um, firms start to uh, invest and build new factories, then that's positive for growth. But it's unclear if we're going to see that.
0: But wouldn't they invest more if they thought that it was going to be more lucrative?
4: Um, they would, but there's a number of items that's afflicting that industry. One is the, the electricity costs are very high, which make it very difficult for um, Alcoa and other aluminum producers to be cost effective. So as long as there's support, so instead of tariffs, I would argue that if you can give subsidies, you know, to reduce the cost of electricity, that is probably a more beneficial um, impact in the aluminum industry than than tariffs, which could ignite a trade war.
2: I'd like to know your thoughts about what's going on with the U.S. dollar and whether we can see continued U.S. dollar weakness or whether rising U.S. interest rates in the United States uh, will uh, compel investors to be bullish the dollar.
4: It's probably what surprises people the most. You know, we have such strong U.S. growth fundamentals. You have a Federal Reserve that is sounding ever bit more hawkish, but yet the dollar has has weakened. It reminds me of a period in the mid-2000s where we had the same thing where the Fed was hiking interest rates, but the dollar declined 7% despite Fed interest rates going up another 125 basis points. I see a similar pattern happening now, and the main difference is that global growth remains pretty strong. And I think that that factor is likely to keep the dollar um, under pressure, because we have a lot of Fed rate hikes priced in. But I think that the key theme driving the dollar for the next year or two is monetary policy convergence, where the ECB will tighten policy, and the BOJ will tighten policy. But right now, the markets haven't priced in a lot of that. So would that be good for emerging markets? Um, Well, I think that the global backdrop for emerging markets is actually still pretty constructive. Export growth is pretty strong, and global financial conditions still remain very accommodative. Those are great conditions for emerging markets. The big wild card is what, what Peter Navarro just talked about and what we've been discussing about the prospects of trade wars. That remains the real big wild card for global growth, and that would be particularly negative for emerging markets because trade wars will definitely affect um, export-dependent economies and other economies?
0: You know, I'm just struggling to sort of extrapolate out here. So if the Fed gets more hawkish and raises rates more frequently, the dollar continues its uh, depreciating path, meaning that uh, foreign investors are less willing to invest in this nation. Isn't this a sort of dangerous recipe, allowing uh, borrowing costs in the US to rise somewhat more than perhaps the economy can handle?
4: Well, I think that's certainly a risk and another source of uh, tightening for the overall economy. Um, And that's that's the other factor that I didn't describe behind dollar weakness is the reemergence of twin deficits. Not only is the current account deficit rising, but in particular, the budget deficit, which will rise from 3.4% of GDP last year to some estimates I've seen nearly 6%, and the issuance, the treasury issuance we're likely to see with Fed selling of treasuries and new issuance could lead to a crowding out of investors, and that will drive up treasury yields and borrowing costs for the U.S.
2: At just the, at just the wrong time.
4: Exactly. At a time um, when when we've entered a mature phase of the U.S. economic cycle, Um, But we're receiving the stimulus at the time that we probably shouldn't be seeing it.
0: You know, I'm wondering whether I'm overreading one particular market action today. I'm looking at five-year forward uh, break-evens. Basically, this is a measure of future traders' expectations of inflation over the next five years. It's risen to the highest since 2013. If you look at longer-term measures of inflation, they've actually been declining. This seems to me a setup for stagflation. Do you think that we are... Heading more toward that potential reality, I,
4: I would say that unlikely to see that at this point in time. Only because the the Fed has definitely communicated that the objective of form of 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 monetary policy is gradual rate hikes, and as long as we see twenty five basis points, you know, per quarter, I think that that reduces the risk of stagflation, um, but certainly it's, it's worth monitoring, especially with the prospects of trade wars and does that start to hurt um, growth? And, um, and inflation is really the big wild card. It looks like all the trends, inflation and wages seem to be on this mild upward trend, but if we were to see real surprise to the upside, then that might force the Fed to tighten more aggressively then the risks of stagflation truly increase. I want to thank you for
2: spending time with us and coming into our 1130 studios. Paresh Upadia is the director of currency strategy at Amundi Pioneer.
0: Are we getting closer to nuclear war? Well, many say yes, and here to talk about that, and frankly, the company's, uh, the corporate role in this sort of escalation of nuclear tensions is Beatrice Finn, Executive Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, based in Geneva, Switzerland. She joins us here in our 1130 studios. She also has won a Nobel Peace Prize, and she keeps it on her mantelpiece, I'm sure. Uh, thank you so much, Beatrice, for being here with us. Uh, you recently put out a report outlining... Uh, the corporate role in nuclear arms. Can you sort of lay out what you found there?
5: Well, we see a very worrying international trend where the nuclear armed states are modernizing their arsenals and frankly threatening to use nuclear weapons. And when Trump says that he wants more usable nuclear weapons... There are companies behind that that produce them. Um, And companies like Honeywell, Boeing, Airbus, for example, that are making uh, these weapons. And of course, there's also a huge number of financial institutions that are providing them with the money to do so. So we've been tracking this and seeing that last year uh, there was uh, an additional $81 billion made available for nuclear weapons production.
0: Just real quickly, uh, does the government pay like just, just, just for example, would the U.S. government pay Boeing or Honeywell to develop something
5: in advance? And are they doing so right now? Yeah, it's huge defense contracts that involve the, the, these kind of modernization programs of nuclear arsenals that are being put out to these companies. So people are making profit out of these indiscriminate, inhumane weapons of mass destruction that could end us all, really.
2: Um, back in uh, I, this is obviously before, way before you were born, but in 1961, uh, President Eisenhower, in his farewell speech to the nation, spoke about the potential danger of the influence in government of the military-industrial mm. complex. Uh, Eisenhower was also seemingly an advocate that no private industry should profit from the manufacture of armaments. Do you believe that we— use a flawed lens to look at the effects of the armaments industry, and I'm, what I mean by that, particularly in nuclear power, nuclear in it, weapons, not nuclear power, because that's a completely mm-hmm. different thing, is that they provide a level of safety which may sound rhetorically coherent, but in reality, doesn't necessarily work that way. I wonder what your thoughts are about that.
5: Exactly. I mean, these weapons uh, put us at the brink of war all the time. Uh, We've seen throughout the Cold War, but also after the Cold War, how close we've been to nuclear war and nuclear use. And the consequences of that would be devastating with hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of casualties, uh, long-term impact uh, both on human health, on the environment, but also, of course, the business sector.
2: Right, but I guess I I was going with this is that... um, Yes, they they sound rhetorically horrible, and they are Mm -hmm. nuclear uh, weapons, but that they provide a kind of context that then allows for the escalation of what you might describe as conventional warfare, whether that is using chemical weapons in Mm -hmm. Syria, or whether that is using uh, terrorist Bombs to you know, blow up innocent civilians. In other words, it gives you that kind of cover that says, well, we can't use nuclear weapons, so we're going to use these other things, but they mm-hmm. kill people nonetheless.
5: Absolutely, and I think the entire weapons industry is, is a problem. But these weapons are really um, at another level in a way with uh, the possibility to, in just a few seconds, wipe out an entire city. Well, uh,
0: some people would argue that, uh, you know, nuclear weapons have actually prevented another world war since their advent, and basically, that the threat of using them has actually created peace. Uh, And a lot of people would say that if a country does fall behind with respect to modernizing their, uh, their stashes of nuclear uh, weapons, that they could make it more likely uh, that there could be some kind of conflict. I mean, what do you say to that argument?
5: Well, we're the the threat of using nuclear weapons. is carried out uh, all the time. We have big submarines and airplanes uh, going around with these weapons and sort of ha- hair-trigger alert. And it also means that there could be a risk of an accident, a uh, misunderstanding. Um, deterrence will not always hold up. One day we will see nuclear weapons being used. We have seen many examples, for example, where it hasn't uh, prevented war or conflict. We are, have been at the brink of war with North Korea uh, right now. When you talk with companies, when you talk to Boeing or, or Honeywell, uh, what do they say and, and what do you say to them? These companies and also the financial institutions that invest in them, they don't like to admit uh, that they are involved in, in this and trying to sort of deviate. So I think it's really important for the public and for consumers to know what they are producing. And I think that the the report that we produced is to also increase transparency. And let consumers know where their money goes and where their pension funds are, are being used for. So I think it's, um, it, for us it's really important to have this dialogue with the companies also and to sort of try to find out what they are producing uh, and, and expose that in a way to make the consumers be able to choose.
2: Do you think that the efforts on the part of U.S. presidents, at least in the past, to reduce the nuclear stockpile, which really every president has done, uh, have been matched by uh, the efforts, let's say, on the part of uh, the Russian government?
5: I mean, we've seen... Um, tensions go up and down. We've seen some huge progress. We saw that in the 80s, for example. We saw huge progress in the 60s after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, right now, we see a very negative trend. Uh, so I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of concern right now that we're going in the wrong direction in the nuclear arms states. We saw Putin last week uh, with an aggressive statement showing off new types of missiles. Uh, of course, the US, uh, the Trump new nuclear posture review um, shows a... Uh, uh, an attempt to lower the bar for using nuclear weapons and develop more usable nuclear weapons. And we see all the nuclear arms states right now in a very uh, negative trend. But we also see a lot of countries going the other direction. Uh, we negotiated a treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons uh, last year. And seeing a lot of leadership from around the world and countries rejecting this weapon. Beatrice Finn, thank you so much uh, for joining us.
0: Really a pleasure, uh, although, you know, I'm going to be worrying about Armageddon for the rest of the day. But other than that, it was a pleasure. Beatrice Finn, Executive Director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, uh, based in Geneva. She is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, Our thanks to you for coming in. Oil, a lot going on here. I was struck by the IEA, uh, the projection that U.S. shale will account for about half of all new demand uh, within the next 10 years. Vincent Piazza, senior equity energy analyst and and global sector leader for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us now. How does the increasing U.S. production and, frankly, exports to the rest of the world affect oil prices in your estimation?
6: So I think what we have talked about from time to time over the last several years is the resilience of uh, u.s oil production and if you take a look at where we bottomed in uh, production of the last couple of years uh, somewhere around 8.5 8.6 million barrels uh, we've driven this higher from the recovery will likely come in somewhere around 10.7 almost 11 million barrels uh, per day in 2018 uh, and that'll likely shift higher to about 11 million barrels in 2019. So you're seeing this strong, resilient growth in US output, especially from unconventional resources from the Permian and to a lesser extent from uh, the Bakken and also uh, from the Eagle Ford in general, the liquids dominant plays. But Lisa, it's not just an oil or liquids driven story. It's also a natural gas story as well. Uh, So across the hydrocarbon chain, um, natural gas from Appalachia, also natural gas from the Permian as well. So you're seeing a renaissance not just in the crude oil side, uh, but also in uh, natural gas from various plays. And that leads to uh, growth in LNG exports and also pipeline exports to other countries such as Mexico.
2: Who sets the price? What's the price-setting mechanism for oil, and is it different for oil than it is for, uh, let's say, natural gas and liquefied natural gas? uh,
6: It's it's the standard uh, demand versus supply, really. Um, And what we've seen here from the U.S. perspective is this strong growth. Uh, in crude oil output, and that has placed sort of a limiting factor on the surge uh, in uh, crude oil prices in general. Uh, What you're seeing here is uh, capacity that's being taken offline in other parts of the world, uh, namely OPEC, uh, not having as much of an impact relative to history um, as as it is today.
0: Uh, I read a a story yesterday on the Bloomberg that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, It was members of OPEC, senior officials, saying that they were speaking to hedge funds down at the uh, SARA conference in Houston that's going on right now, and uh, they were concerned. They felt like hedge funds didn't understand their industry. Uh, Did you see that story?
6: Um, I did not, but it wouldn't surprise me, right? I mean, Given the volatility and the cyclicality of oil and gas, um, there are a lot of factors that go into the equation, and it is a conundrum for not just uh, uh, energy-specific hedge funds, but generalists as well.
0: So what do OPEC members want investors to be seeing that they're not right now?
6: I I think the history of uh, OPEC has been um, a sense that uh, while there may be constraints Uh, put around um, output, that there always been some leakage on output. In other words, compliance has always been difficult. And what they want uh, investors to appreciate, that they seem pretty steadfast uh, in their commitment to uh, controlling the output from their side. What I think many have misunderstood and what uh, we at BI have always spoken about is this resurgence in crude oil, this resilience in, in crude oil production, not only crude oil, but also natural gas production because of the shorter cycle nature of unconventional output.
2: What about the input costs and how that relates to those refiners and those in the midstream of production? Because we've heard a lot about how low input cost means that you've got a nice fat margin for uh, if you're running an oil refinery.
6: Well, those differentials have now narrowed uh, somewhat given the... uh, Uh, given the tighter balances in uh, Cushing. uh, There used to be wider difference in the spread between Brent and WTI uh, that has now consolidated. Uh, And now you're in a seasonal period where refiners are going through uh, their traditional maintenance, getting ready for- The big driving season, right? Getting ready for the big driving season. Um, So you do have refiners coming offline. Uh, In general, that differential now is somewhere around $3. It was almost twice that at one point uh, last year. Uh, but given the output surge cr- in, in crude oil, uh, that differential seems to be uh, where will likely, likely be in, in the near term.
2: All right. want to thanks very much uh, for being here. And uh, as always, appreciate uh, the thoughts and uh, experience of Vincent Piazza. He is our senior equity energy analyst and global sector leader for Bloomberg Intelligence.